Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome to Better Living, a show about the people and organizations that make an impact in our area. I'm your host, Nick Carissimi. A returning guest and a new guest on the program today, later in the show, Dr. Chong Joy Yun will join me in studio to talk about skin cancer, skin health, and ways to keep your body safe in the blistering hot Texas sun. We start off with the Texas State Guard. Brigadier General Robert Hastings joins me in studio. Sir, how are you doing today? Uh, it's great to be here. We're doing, we're doing great. Thanks. All right. So you, as I mentioned, you, you had been here before. We got to know the Texas State Guard. We're going to do that again for anybody that didn't hear your first interview. But we've also got a lot to cover as far as expansion, new programs, different things that you guys are doing to help out the state and the citizens of Texas. Before we get going on all the new stuff, let's go ahead and refresh people on what the Texas State Guard is and what you guys do. So thanks, Nick. So the Texas State Guard is one of the three agencies that reside within the Texas Military Department. Most people are very familiar with the Texas Army National Guard and the Texas Air National Guard. What people are surprised, I find, a lot of times is to know that there's a third agency in there, the Texas State Guard. And so the Army Guard, uh, as, as most people are very well aware, backs up the U.S. Army with a lot of federal missions, the Air Guard to the U.S. Air Force. Uh, the Texas State Guard exists to handle just those state military missions uh, that, the, that the governor may want us to do. And as we talked about last time, it's not military in the way that most people would think of it as far as being weapons. Right. So our missions do not uh, don't um, require us to have weapons to do the type of missions we do here in the state of Texas. They're domestic operations. They're in support of civil authorities. And what we found is we use military skills, military command and control, and military processes military training, then then turn around and assist in the domestic the domestic world. And you did serve in the military. That's true. So I, I was in the regular Army before I came to Texas and joined the Texas State Guard. We think uh, there's about a third of the current members of the Texas State Guard have federal military service in their background. Does that help? Uh, it helps, but it's not required. So I think maybe the for most people, the transition's easier. I walked right out of the United States Army and into the Texas State Guard. But like I said, two-thirds of the folks in the Texas State Guard today did not serve in prior military service. And that's an advantage, too, because they bring a completely different skill set and mentality in. And, and it's, it helps us be much more responsive to civil authorities because we have many different points of view within the Guard. And what was it that you did while you were in the military? So uh, in the Army, I was a combat aviator. So I flew in my last job. I flew Apaches and Blackhawks. Last time that you were here, I was asking all kinds of questions about it. Uh, all right. So Texas State Guard, how large of a force are we talking about? So today, the Texas State Guard sits right around 2,000 people. And we're in uh, units that are everywhere in the state. Every corner of the state's got a, a little small unit in there somewhere. 2,000 people might work for Rhode Island unbelievably well. Here in the state of Texas, 2,000 people, it, gets, it can be at times, I'm sure, spread pretty thin. How effective is your size in relation to how big Texas is? Yeah, well, you're right. Texas is a big state. And what we found, the, the most recent major emergency that we participated in was Hurricane Harvey. And what we found in Hurricane Harvey is that we got saturated and at full capacity very quickly. 
And in fact, if you go back and look at the history, the entire Texas military department was activated, all of the Army Guard, all of the Air Guard, and all of the Texas State Guard. And what, uh, in, in hindsight, we looked back and the governor saw that uh, how effective the Texas State Guard was and ordered us to, to begin to grow, recognizing that 2000 is not enough. Since that time, the Texas State Legislature has met. They obviously allocate resources within the state, and they allocated enough funds and resources in the two-year window coming up ahead for us to grow to 2750. So that's almost a 30% growth spike that we'll uh, we'll try to go through in the next two years. What will that growth do for you guys? Is it what you wanted? Did you want more, or is that a comfortable number for you guys? So I think it's a really good number. Um, I think we'll grow beyond that, maybe at the end of the next two-year window, once we sh- once we uh, can show that we can grow uh, and get the right quality of people in. There was some talks early on about 5,000, and I think maybe that's still a target number to get to over time. What more troops give us is uh, is more capability in two dimensions. One dimension is more people on the ground instantly. So instead of 2,000 at once, it could be 3,000 at once. Or if you have a prolonged uh, event, then it's depth, right? Maybe it's 1,000 at a time, and you're there for 10 days, and you rotate out, and somebody else takes your place, and you rotate out, and someone else takes your place. That's really important because everyone in the Texas State Guard and the National Guard, they all have jobs other than what we do in the Guard. They have families to take care of, homes to take care of. And so one of the reasons that increased strength is important is it gives us sort of resiliency, the ability to, to run these missions for longer periods of time. Is it, is it an all-volunteer force for the Texas State Guard or are they paid members of this organization? Yeah, so... It, uh, there's a couple of ways to answer that question. First of all, <laughs> the entire Department of Defense is all volunteer, right? So we're, True. we're volunteers just like Fair everyone enough. else that serves. Uh, we are paid when we're called on active duty. So uh, during Hurricane Harvey, for example, everyone that came up for Hurricane Harvey is paid. And we have a small budget that allows us to sustain training throughout the year. But for the most part, if you join a Texas State Guard unit and you do your weekend drill, that is done without pay. So we serve in that capacity like volunteers. Is there a mixing between the National Guard, the Air Corps, and the Texas State Guard? So maybe the National uh, Guard guys come over and spend some time with you guys, does, or does everybody stay separate? Yeah, so in, in operations, there's a lot of joint activity that goes on. Uh, Hurricane Harvey's another really great example. So I could, I could point out um, shelters. So some of the really big shelters that we set up, here in North Texas, the, um, we, we had a mass shelter set up. We had National Guard and State Guard people working in that shelter together, um, side by side. But we also have hot opportunities to put State Guard people in with National Guard units. Our chaplains, for example. The National Guard is, is uh, challenged to have enough chaplains to support all of its units. Mm. And so we activated all of our chaplains, and some of them actually deployed inside National Guard units. Interesting. Let's talk more about what you guys did during the hurricane. It's a great way to just understand your capabilities and the services that you do provide. And I also want to kind of use that to segue into what you learned from that, because you told me off mic that you guys have done the analysis uh, of that operation. And and that's basically why you grew. You saw that it was effective and the state agreed and they decided to give you more people. So before we kind of get to that part, let's just talk about some of the major things that you guys did. Yeah, so we uh, we handled a, a number of missions, but I think they all fall into about three or four uh, major buckets. So right off the bat, one of the first things we do in event of a major emergency in the state of Texas is operate something called the Emergency Tracking Network. 
if you go back and remember a lot of the stories that came out of Katrina, there were horror stories around uh, hospitals evacuated and the patients in those hospitals now being separated from their families mm. and not knowing where they went. Uh, senior citizens and assisted living being evacuated and their families not knowing where they are. So Texas, on its own, developed the emergency tracking network. And basically, it's like a band you get in the hospital. I remember uh, right? talking about that. And so the minute you touch the evacuation system in the state of Texas, you're going to get a band. And you're going to enter it in the system. And now we know where you are all the time. Not only that, your family can know where you are. And that's what's really important. So uh, if you're put on a bus and you get sent to all the, from, from South Texas all the way up here to Dallas, they can go into a system and know that their family member's up here in Dallas and that he's fine. So that's the first wave of, of effort that we usually do when things start happening. The second thing is we help establish shelters. So all over Texas, local authorities are responsible for sheltering. It's a, like a county mission, but it requires a lot of manpower. So the Red Cross comes in and we come in. And uh, so we, we start putting a lot of people in the shelters. And that mission changes over time. It starts with little shelters, churches, community centers, schools. And then as we figure out that the storm or the situation is going to last more than 24 hours or 48, then we start opening big shelters. And uh, the KBH uh, Convention Center here in Dallas mm. became one of those big shelters. And so we think there were somewhere around 25,000 people in shelters for a long period of time during this storm, and we were part of that. And then I think uh, probably the last big thing we did was in logistics. I was down in, uh, in Houston, and I saw all of the supplies that were rolling in from all over the country. And it's fabulous that we live in a nation that, that has that kind of outreach when someone's in trouble. But very quickly, there were just truckloads of supplies piling up all around. And so we uh, established a, a warehouse. We did one up in, uh, in Houston, and we did a couple others across the state where we started breaking down all these donations, figuring out what it is, and repackaging them in a way that they can be used and shipping them forward. Lots of other little missions where we bring in military skills, but I think those are probably the three big ones. Are you able to keep some of these supplies that you receive and store them for later usage? So it depends on what it is. So a lot of stuff is perishable, or unfortunately, a lot of stuff you don't know where it came from. Right. It gets thrown into the system of people caring. But uh, we are fortunate that within the state of Texas, our partnership with the Red Cross and with FEMA, there are warehouses set already with pre-positioned supplies. So if something like uh, Hurricane Harvey happens again, we have here in Texas the, the food, water, medical equipment, cots, blankets, pillows, that kind of stuff is pre-positioned around the state. Mm. And that's one of the things we do, the Red Cross does, is start moving that stuff out to the locations where it's necessary. How do you keep something like that efficient? This is an emergency, so a lot is happening. And I think that we've heard a lot of stories about how the supplies are there, but they're not being distributed. And this is, it happens in other countries. It has happened here in the past. When you're in charge of something like that, and you're watching all this stuff come in and making sure it's going out, how do you make sure that it gets done well and properly and efficiently? So I think the citizens of Texas should be absolutely proud of how their government and their uh, both governmental and non-governmental agencies worked well together in Harvey. Uh, it wasn't just us. I mean, there's only 2,000 of us. There were tens of thousands of volunteers helping during Harvey. I think the, the key uh, answer to your question is we train and we prepare. So within the state of Texas, from the Department of Emergency Management and Department of Public um, safety, uh, Department of State Health Services, into the Texas Military Department, we train to these emergencies all the time. 
and we rehearse and practice and execute. And, and it just it proved during Harvey that the system we have in place works and works well. The state looked at this organization and decided to grow it. After this analysis, what did you guys learn? Internally, what did you figure out that you needed to work on? What did you feel good about when you were done with it? Yeah, so I think the uh, when I talked to the soldiers who were actually in the shelters and face-to-face with those citizens that they were helping, I think that the what feels good is that they, they got to do something. Right? They weren't sitting at home watching something unfold on TV and then wishing they were part of it. Hmm. So the Texas State Guardsmen and the other emergency responders were trained and ready, and they were able to get in there and go to work. We learned that we probably needed more uh, emphasis on some of the special skills. So one of the big ones that I didn't mention earlier were boats. So we were able to put boats into Houston. And that very first night that Houston went underwater, uh, the Texas State Guard alone brought about 1,300 people out um, from their flooded homes and got them to safety. As you know from watching that, that the Cajun Navy showed up. Lots of people with boats showed up to help. And I think one of the lessons learned is that we need more boats and we need more more crews to help with that. So that's that's an increased area of emphasis. Uh, we're going to put more emphasis on communications. We were lucky with Harvey that the Internet largely stayed up and our connectivity was pretty strong. But we were right on the edge the whole time of, of uh, being concerned that we could lose that. Right? If you lose your power grid, uh, then the... the the transmitters all go down, the connectivity falls out. So we have, uh, within the state of Texas, uh, ability to replace the internet. We have partners like Verizon and AT&T that are part of that, and we practice that as well. But that's an, another increased area of emphasis. So you have to have drills on whether the internet goes out or not. Absolutely. That's crazy. It's crazy to think about. So at our, uh, we, we, just, we do a pre-hurricane season exercise. Uh, we just did that uh, in April. In my command, we actually had a period of time where we just turned off the, the trailer that was giving us Internet and practiced how we would talk to each other and communicate and get messages around. And it, it's tough. Is it radios? How do you do it? It's uh, it's radios and telephones, and sometimes it's someone driving from here to there to tell somebody what to do. The good news is is we do have a very robust network that can replace that Internet. So uh, we're we're internet dependent in our lives. We would be internet dependent in an emergency, but we have the ability to to, to keep that system going. At this point in the year, where is your focus? You've done your training. Are you kind of just waiting for something to happen? Um, so no, we're not waiting for something to happen. <laughs> no, uh, no one wants anything to happen, right? <laughs> Uh, we would we'd be just as happy being bored for the rest of hurricane season. Sure, but I, but I get where your sure. question's at. So we our cycle of readiness in the year focuses focuses on being maximum ready on the first of June, and then we sustain that through the end of October. End of October, okay. Right. So you know, hurricane season we'd like to think of most people think of ends of sort of about now, the end of the summer, but the truth is it rolls through most of the fall. Right, and in fact. Harvey came about this time. We were, I was going to say, I actually see it as late summer to yeah. early fall is really yeah. when it's dangerous, Exactly. at so, least at this part of the year. So it was right at the end of August when Harvey came. And so, um, like I said, we train and focus on being ready on the 1st of June, and then we sustain through this hurricane season. And then as soon as it's over, we go right back to the basics again. And we start, we build from the bottom up individual skills, then we go to team skills, then we go to large team skills, and then we go to exercises where the, the whole guard with partners are mm-hmm. training. And that culminates around the 1st of June. 
Brigadier General Robert Hastings in the studio today talking about the Texas State Guard. If you want to find them online, the easiest and best way to do it is to Google Texas State Guard. One of the things that you wanted to talk about today was your brand new search, rescue, and recovery program unit. How would you describe it? We call it a program. Uh, so we've had search and rescue teams within the Texas State Guard for a while, but we made a conscious effort, again, analysis out of Harvey. We didn't have to use them, but in our analysis, we determined that was an area where we could put more emphasis. So we have a new program. It's nine months worth of training. Wow. And it, again, it goes through that individual to team to large group uh, walk, crawl, run mentality. Uh, the, about the first 75 soldiers are about ready to finish that. They'll finish up in October. And we will eventually move to having on-call, rapid response, search and rescue teams across the state of Texas. Uh, Texas, again, is fortunate that there is a pretty robust search and rescue program across the state. Again, it's local. Cities have them. Then counties have them. And the same thing, we will be a state resource that can augment those local teams. The great thing about that is that that's a mission that people really love to get behind because someone's in trouble. And I'm here to help. And so there's a, there's a lot of interest in that program. Extensive training is what I'm understanding. What are they doing? Are you using dogs? Is this about aerial rescue? We already talked about how you guys had to buy more boats. When you say search and rescue, what are we talking about? So this program are, these, this program are people wearing boots on the ground, in the woods, searching. Um, so Texas has dog teams. We're not doing that. Texas has air teams and the Air National Guard and Army National Guard. We're not doing that. Ours are troops on the ground so we can narrow a search to a particular grid. And we go in with, uh, with uh, very skilled recovery and rescue people and start searching, in some cases, foot by foot by foot, looking for people. What makes their training uh, so much better? Is it the idea of they know what to do when they finally find somebody? Is it the idea of actually tracking them down? What makes them so good at their job? It is complex, unfortunately. Uh, the first thing is you got to be able to survive yourself. So what you don't want to do is put searchers in the field that turn into somebody else being looked for. And that actually happens all the time. You see it on TV when there's a missing child and a whole community comes rush, rushing out. They all get online. They all go in the woods. And the next thing you know, you're looking for three lost members of the community. Exactly. Okay. Right. And, and that's kind of what I was getting at. You see this in movies. Right. Little Jimmy's missing. Right. And then you have the town comes out, and it's just a long line of people with sticks banging around yeah. bushes, walking in a straight line. How is this different? So first of all, that's another great thing about Americans is they come out and do that. And a lot of times that's, that's exactly what's necessary. What we focus on is where the terrain might be very difficult mm. or the search might be very complex or it might be at night or there might be water obstacles. So it's actually dangerous to let people untrained to go out there. This training gives you a couple things. One is familiarity with the terrain. You have to be able to read a map down to the yard and be able to know exactly where you are and move deliberately and cover areas. I've been on search missions, and it's really easy for an entire organization to begin moving in one direction and not even realize that they've turned 90 degrees because the terrain turned 90 degrees, and so you kind of follow the hills and stuff. These guys won't have those mistakes. Then you got to be able to to um, read the land. You can see evidence of where somebody has moved. We call it man tracking, you know, broken sticks, um, footprints in the mud, evidence of movement like that. And then finally, when you actually do find somebody, you've got to be able to evacuate them. So they get first aid training and transportation training. So it's a nine-month program to be an entry-level 
member of the team. What units in the actual army are using these kind of tactics? Is there uh, a unit or a specialty within the military that you would compare this to, or at least these, this skill set to? Yeah, so it, it it's multiple skill sets. I think it it's probably not all too different from being an infantryman because it's being on the ground, familiar with the terrain, being able to read the terrain, being physically fit, being able to move across the terrain and not make a, a hazard of yourself. So it's not that different than maybe being an infantryman in the Army. What kind of technology with, are you using? Without, oh. without the combat engagement skills that sure. really make up most of what that skill is about. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, there's got to be certain types of technology that you are using. You you were very uh, keen on mentioning that we're talking about basic map usage, right. things like that, the old school techniques. What technology are you incorporating into that? So that we're fortunate today with GPS. So we do have handheld GPS. It's very accurate. Do you find that to be cheating? <laughs> so, yeah. So I, you know, as as a parent who taught my kids how to read a map okay, before yeah. I let them use GPS. There you go. Uh, you can't lose the basics. But GPS is an enhancing tech. It's an enhancing technology that that really lets us be very very accurate. GPS won't read the terrain for you. Mm. So it is a combination of of understanding the terrain, being able to read it, but also using the technology. But then really. Uh, there's not a lot of technology that helps you save somebody, right? Uh, you know, it's it's there. It's being able to know what's going on, apply the immediate life-saving procedures, and evacuate them out if if that's what's necessary. What kind of events are they going to be used in? Is it major events like Hurricane Harvey, or is it going to be somebody's lost in a state park somewhere and they need help? They're in a, a, in a tough area to get to. What, what are we looking at? I think both of those are reasonable scenarios. I think the um, someone lost in a park, uh, can most likely be handled by the local police and sheriff and fire departments. If the train's particularly tough, it may come to us. There's also Task, task Force One uh, that we have here. That they fly all over the world, and they are the they are the really the pros in search and rescue. But um, two missions that I do know we have done in the past. You may remember probably three years ago, major flooding uh, all across Texas, uh, where communities along the rivers. Were, were washed out. Yes. Bridges washed out, homes washed away. And so in the aftermath of that, uh, the, the search and rescue program we had at the time, we put search teams on the riverbeds as the water came down. Unfortunately, in that case, it was a recovery mission, not a rescue mission. But that's an, an example of a kind of scenario that could evolve that these folks would be used in. I just thought about it. You mentioned Task Force One going all across the world to offer their services. Has the Texas State Guard ever gone anywhere else to help, or has it always been just Texas? We exist to support the state of Texas. There are um, compacts among the states that allow the states to share emergency resources. Mm. In Harvey, you would have noticed a lot of people from other states here. So it, we train principally for Texas. That doesn't rule out that the governor might offer our services to Louisiana or Oklahoma if that were to happen, but that's not in our mission set. Our mission is to be ready to respond here in Texas. Ready for Texas. Ready for Texas. All right. Now, uh, Operation Lone Star was another big thing that you guys just wrapped up? Yeah, Lone Star just wrapped up at the end of July. Uh, we believe it's, it is the largest or certainly one of the largest uh, emergency response missions that takes place in the United States every year. Um, the best way to train for medical emergencies and treating people in medical emergencies is to treat people. So our medical professionals, and there are, we've got about 300 of them, uh, they participated in this exercise for a week down in the Rio Grande Valley. 
It's a state-led exercise, the Department of State Health Services. Army Guard, Air Guard, State Guard, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, local county emergency, people all involved. But we went into the Rio Grande Valley. We simulate a, a mass casualty event. And then our providers provide free medical services to the citizens there. It gives them people to practice on, you know, to make it a simple term. Everything from we did school physicals um, for students on sports teams, uh, dental care, eye care, and some minor actual medical care out there. Mm. But it lets us really flex our entire system to operate remotely because they weren't in hospitals. They were in schools and community centers and actually for our medical professionals to, to, uh, to exercise that with real patients. Is Operation Lone Star something you guys have done in the past? Is this an annual thing, or an, was this a, a one-off? It's an annual exercise, and I think we're we're well past 20 or 21 years of doing this here in the state of Texas. Is it always the Rio Grande Valley? Uh, it's always down the Rio Grande Valley, yes. Why is that such a great place for you guys to exercise? Well, there's a couple of reasons it's down there. One is that it's a, it's a deployment, right? So half of what we do is just being able to go do things remotely. Right. So it's a deployment. It's a place to go and, and move all the resources, move the medical supplies, move the personnel. Uh, it's an area where medical care, medical care is needed. And so, you know, those kind of line up and we, we chose the Rio Grande Valley for that exercise. And it lasts for a week? It's about five days of actual treatment. It's a little bit longer with the deployment there and the deployment back. But I think the, the clinics are open for about five days. Is it something the community has become to depend on are they excited to see you guys like it's it's timely fine to get finally time to get my physical so the response we get down there is overwhelming i think that's it's truly appreciated um not only is it truly appreciated it's a great recruiting event for us we always end up with people that want to join right they they actually see the the medical services coming in and we always end up with some people that want to be part of that is that common for any of your missions whenever you guys go out are you usually dragging somebody back with you uh it happens a lot actually People, like I said, it, it it's easy to not see us because we wear the same uniforms of the as the other two branches of the of the Texas Military Department. Yeah. And then when you actually have exposure in a shelter or on a mission, a lot of times we do end up with people that go, "I want to I want to know what you guys are doing and how I get involved in that." What is that process like for anybody that's interested in joining the Texas State Guard? What can they expect as far as becoming a member? Yeah, so the first thing is, uh, like you said, Google, join the Texas State Guard. There's an inquiry form that is on the website there where you basically you give us your contact information. If you've got military service, we'll ask you about that. Uh, and then a recruiter will be, will be assigned to talk to you. If you're qualified, and the qualifications are not tough, if you're qualified, uh, then we start the process. The long pull in the tent really is the background check. Um, everyone that comes in the Texas State Guard gets a background check. We, we don't accept anyone with a criminal history. Uh, and the reason is, is I think, obvious. Not only do we want to have quality personnel in the organization, but we also interact with, with families and children in these shelters. So we want to make absolutely sure we know who's in the organization and who we're putting out there. Um, the whole process is about three to five weeks or so. If, if you're doing your part, filling out the forms, getting your background check, getting your fingerprints and all that, and we do our part, we can, we can close this out and in, in, uh, get you in the unit in less than two months. Quick. It's pretty quick, yes. All right. Now, as far as terms of service, how long are people in the Texas State Guard? Is there a minimum? So we have no obligated term of service. So we recognize that people are giving their time and their resources. 
we like people to stay because the longer you stay, the more proficient you are, the more experience you have, the less retraining we do for new people. But there's no minimum term of service. I find I like to talk to people about three years. If you want to come into the Texas State Guard, I'd like you to sort of intellectually make a commitment around three years. Because it's going to take a year before you really understand and can perform all the different tasks. And then we want you to be part of a team. And that team trains up and gets ready for hurricane season. And then maybe you get experienced enough to help other people learn. So three years is a real good minimum time that I talk to people about. Um, I find that we have people who serve uh, shorter periods of time or very long. So people tend to come in and stay, you know, one, two years. They've, they've done their service. They feel good about it. And they move on in their lives or something's changed, or they tend to just stay. Do people dip in and out? Is that common? Not a lot. I mean, we occasionally get it. So, we'll, And we've got processes in place to allow for that. If you're, if you're working and you're a project manager and you, you, you raise your hand one day and say, look, the next six months, I'm going to be working 40 hours of overtime every week, every weekend, and it's important for my job, we can make arrangements for that and take the time off. We use the term take a knee. You take a knee for a little while and then kind of re-engage. We'd, we'd much rather do that and keep people engaged and bring that experience back than to, than to let people quit. If people want to join, what is the best and easiest way for them to do that? Go to that website, Google, join the Texas State Guard, fill out the inquiry form, a recruiter will give you a call, and they'll take you through the rest of the process. Well, it's always a quick half hour with you. It was great seeing you again. The Texas State Guard is the organization. One last time, if you're interested, Google join the Texas State Guard, find them, figure out what you can do for the organization. I've been speaking with Brigadier General Robert Hastings. It was great seeing you again. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.